welcome to Bare Bones Biz Radio. Wayne Dyer says you can be right or you can be kind. You can be right or you can be happy. That sounds nice. Except, what if you are right? And what if your coworker's wrong? What if someone else is taking credit for your idea, your initiative, your sale? Isn't it important to isn't it important to blow your own horn? Isn't that how you get ahead in your career and in your business? But on the other hand, Sometimes you might be tempted to take the hit for some debacle, like, you know, the buck stops here. Let's say you assume the responsibility. Let's make peace. But what about the person who really caused the upset or the problem? He stirs up the pot and you put a lid on it. What kind of message does that send? Welcome to the Blame Game. I'm your host, Ellen Rohr. Thanks for listening to the Bare Bones Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio. My guest today is Dr. Ben Datner, founder of, the da- of Datner Consulting, and he teaches organizational development at NYU. How cool is that? Okay, if you're listening in, we're going to talk about the Blame Game today, and you are welcome to call in. So jot this number down, 347-637-2288. That's 347-637-2284. You can listen online, of course, but if you want to ask a question, you got to call in. And if you do, and raise your hand by pressing the number 1, beep, I'll see that, and I'll interrupt Dr. Datner, and we'll, uh, we'll get your question live and on the air, and that's a lot of fun for us. So welcome to the show. Good to be Hi, with ben. you. Thank you I'm for having me. I'm glad you're here today, and I'm really excited to talk about the, the, the blame game. I was introduced to you through our mutual friend, Darren Dahl, who's a columnist for Inc. Magazine and a rockin' good writer. He's got boatloads of business acumen himself, and you wrote the blame game with him. Before we get started, tell me a little bit, how, how, did that, how did the book and that relationship, how did that come to be? Darren is excellent, and I, I couldn't recommend him more highly as a partner, as a collaborator. Uh, we. Oh spoke to each other almost every day for two years in collaborating on this, and it was really uh, a team effort. It gave us a chance to put into practice uh, all the stuff we were recommending in the book about sharing credit, about being collaborative, and about uh, not blaming each other or anybody else as we hit the inevitable obstacles. Uh, What happened was I was on national public radio four years ago, uh, and a book agent heard me speaking on Morning Edition and cold-called me and asked me if I wanted to write a book. And so it was a little bit like Forrest Gump. It's like then I was on the radio, then these nice people offered me a book deal. And I don't know who's listening right now, but uh, maybe they'll offer to give me a Rolls Royce or something else. I don't know what. But it's like a movie. The next step yeah. is the, the blame game, the movie. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm very proud. If you Google uh, the blame game, uh, my book comes up first. It beats Kanye West's blame game video. So I think there must be a lot of interest in, in the workplace and blame with respect to the workplace because, uh, you know, it's a I highly rated ra- like link. Kanye West. That's a different video. Okay, yeah. <laughs> now I'm straight. Okay, I got it now. Yeah. All right, very good. And, and well, I think so I had two ideas. I had two ideas for the book. Um, the first was about ambivalence. When they said we can, we'd like to represent you, and would you like to write a book? I said, yeah. How about ambivalence about how people go back and forth in the workplace and can't make up their minds and say they want to do A but end up doing B or are indecisive, etc. Uh, and nobody was really that enthusiastic, so to speak. We were all kind of ambivalent <laughs> about like, that I idea. I don't know if we want to do that kind of book. Exactly. So then I said, well, there's this other thing that I've been thinking about for a couple of years, which is credit and blame in the workplace. And the agents were like, wow, 
that's a topic. That's where everybody's yeah. energy is. So that was a sort of uh, immediate lock and load, that's what we should do. And so it took about a year to put a proposal together. Uh, they, the agents put me together with Darren, uh, who's much more experienced than I am as a business writer. He really helped a, a ton with the proposal, uh, and it was we described it as a Lennon and McCartney type dynamic, where, you know, like the Beatles writing their songs, that we would bounce ideas back and forth, and really, it was all in the collaboration that the ideas emerged. Well, he is uh, very honoring and recognizing of you as being a brilliant business mind. And this is a really hot topic because, you know, we were I was just doing a, um, another radio show earlier today, and we were talking about awkward discussions when you have to bring an employee in. And I was thinking about our conversation right now. I am one who's going to want to take responsibility for everything. I'm very much engaged with personal responsibility. I feel that everything that comes into my life, I brought it here. But on the other hand, sometimes we do our team members a disservice if we don't call them out for their performance. So this is That's a right. multifaceted topic. It is. And that, as we got into it, we saw that if it's for individuals in their careers, if it's relationships between people, uh, if it's the dynamic within teams, if it's the dynamic between teams, credit and blame is really where the pedal hits the metal, where interesting things happen in terms of social psychology. And our, we have a couple of basic ideas in the book. One is that credit and blame is not simply an effect of organizational behavior. It's actually a cause of organizational behavior. So it's very easy to look at an organizational triumph or tragedy and say, okay, now who do we blame or who do we credit? Who do we credit for triumph? Who do we blame for tragedy? What's much harder to discern is what was it about the patterns of credit and blame that led to the triumph or tragedy in the first place? So, for example, if a co-pilot is afraid of speaking up and questioning the pilot's judgment, they might run out of fuel or hit a mountain. Uh, if somebody's afraid of being blamed for speaking up, they may, uh, they may not speak up, they may not push back, they may not innovate, the truth may not come out, truth may not speak to power. Uh, or if people are so afraid of being punished for trying something new that they don't experiment and they don't innovate, the organization may never adapt and grow as, as circumstances change. And if people are afraid of making errors of commission by doing the wrong thing, they may stay silent or inactive and might end up making errors of omission, which is doing nothing. So it really gets to the core of everything. Organizational culture, dynamics within teams where teams may scapegoat individuals and it's convenient to find uh, a fall guy or someone to, to take the fall, but that doesn't help the team improve. Or an organization, the culture right. may be blaming of certain departments or external constituencies or stakeholders, but that also doesn't help them learn and grow. Where do you see blame in terms of the work you do? I like to blame everyone else when I don't look good. No. I tend to, <laughs> my, my response is to take on everything. But uh -huh. then what I can see is that that uh, could in certain situations, let other people off the hook. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, you know, I think in, in terms of what I've done in the past, I've been in situations where the culture was of a dynamic that the um, leaders of the organization would throw the managers into the arena and let them fight it out. And whoever could capture the most credit would be rewarded, and it was a pretty bizarro situation. So I, I'm really seeing the different layers of this conversation. Before we get there, I can't imagine, Ben, that when you were eight years old that you said, I really want to be 
a psychologist with a, a, a focus on organizational development. Well, Maybe I'm wrong. Well, what, my my what mother in your life my mother, what were the pivotal pivotal moments that that uh, really shaped your career. Well, I think it's genetic because my mother is a clinical psychologist and my father is an architect, and I think if you join the two, you get an organizational psychologist. Oh, that is an I bet that was an interesting way to grow up. Because you know. Part of it's about psychology. Part of it's about organizations. It's like organizational design with people, as as the building blocks instead of bricks. And so, did you have some moments in your life where you started to uh, pay attention to this blame and credit thing? Do you remember um, an early incident of either well, blame or credit being assigned where it, it had a big impact on you? My parents tell the story, I don't remember this, but my parents tell the story that when I was very young, I said to them, you know why people get divorced? And they said, no, why? And I said, because they blame each other for their own problems. So, okay, so you were starting to see this even then. Yeah. <laughs> even as a young kid, I think that was... And you have uh, a little sign that says the doctor is in five Exactly, steps. exactly right. Okay. And, uh, are you, are you, know, you an only child? Uh, I have a younger sister. Uh, she's, okay. she's, a, she's a pediatrician, so I guess if you combine an architect and a clinical psychologist, you can also get a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> You'll also get a doctor. Sometimes okay. People, did you grow up with people, a sense of? Uh, did you grow up with a sense of personal responsibility? Sometimes people call me Doctor Datner, and I always say that's my sister. It's not me. Don't that's ask me. Don't ask me to give CPR. <laughs> Two doctors, don't you know? Okay, very uh, nice. Yes, I definitely grew up with you know strong family values of accountability, admitting mistakes, and also you know speaking up, questioning things, seeing if there's a new, better way of doing things. One of my favorite stories is uh, this is not my own personal story, but a story I like to tell my clients is there was a family that had come on tough economic times, and the father gathered all the kids around the breakfast table and said, you know, we've come on tough economic times and we're going to have to cut costs, we're going to have to mind our family budget, so I hereby offer a $10 reward to the first kid who can come up with a money-saving idea, and they think about it for a while, and the youngest kid says, make the reward five bucks. <laughs> All right, so he's helping out. Right, so I wonder if the, the question is, does he get five bucks or ten bucks as the reward? Well then, um, did you did you uh, were, was your earlier interest in psychology or organizations, or um, I guess organizations can be fam familial organizations as well as um, business organizations? But which direction did you pursue first, or did they kind of morph together? Well, it all happened at 8:30 in the morning in September of 1990. Uh, oh, I had the good fortune. No, well, yeah, maybe it was 8:32. <laughs> I, I had the great fortune, uh, I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and I had the great fortune of taking Richard Hackman's Social Psychology of Organizations course, uh, which met at 8.30 in the morning and I believe still does, because he wanted to make sure that people were truly motivated to be there, weren't just filling, fulfilling some social science, social psychology requirement. And so, you know, originally I was apprehensive about getting up that early, as most undergraduates okay. are and would be, but I went and sat in on the first class, and I was just transfixed. He's a brilliant, amazing, accomplished, towering, literally and figuratively towering figure in the field. And so I took his class as a junior in 1990 and really fell in love with him and with the topic, and we're still in touch, and he's been an amazing mentor over the years. But that was really the first time when I really saw 
just how endlessly fascinating this topic is intellectually uh, and from so many other perspectives. What was what was one of your earliest memories of him and his message? Like, did he say something or tell a story that resonates with you still? Yeah, he, he tells the story of how he himself went on a team-building exercise, and he vowed to himself, he said, I'm not going to get upset, I'm not going to get angry, and I'm not going to use any foul language. And he said within 10 or 15 minutes of this simulation group experience beginning, he did all three. And so, you know, he was just very honest and open about how powerful group situations can be and how all of us can, can be susceptible to those things. On my website, datnerconsulting.com, D-A-T-T-N-E-R consulting.com, there's an in the press section. And he and I actually appeared together on this PBS series last year called This Emotional Life, where we count, I counseled two aerialists about their workplace relationship, and he talked about the Orpheus Symphony Orchestra. Oh, what a, a blast that must have been! Yeah, it was very cool. Now, how did you get? How did you uh, decide to use aerialists because of how stressful <laughs> it was, and because of the well, teamwork required? <clears throat> this is a funny story too. The PBS producers called me, and they said, "We'll put you in this show." On one condition, <clears throat> and that condition is you have to find two people who are willing to be counseled about their their workplace relationship on air. And I said, okay. okay. And just the week before, two aerialists, two trapeze artists had called me to ask for help in their conflictual relationship with each other, two, two business partners and performing partners. And so I said to these PBS producers, I said, well, how about these two aerialists? And they said, you know, we really don't think that's going to work. We're looking for people with traditional jobs, lawyers. We're picturing offices, conference rooms, that kind of thing. And I said, you know, if you went to see these aerialists practicing, I think you would see it's actually quite telegenic. Like they're, you know, both very striking looking and, and very talented in what they do. Why don't you at least go watch them rehearse? So the producers went to watch them rehearse, and they called me up. They're like, we have to use them. We couldn't possibly use anyone else. <laughs> they're, they're oh, amazing. I think, that, I think amazing. it's so, you know, figuratively, literally, they depend on each other. I mean, yes. not any, well, there are workplace situations. You think of, like, search and rescue and, uh, you know, firefighters and other um, scenarios. But sometimes right. we don't depend on our team members, you know, to keep us from dying. But sometimes we That's do. Right. And I, <laughs> that these it would heighten all the issues that are there anyway. Yes, very much so. So I think it's a it's sort of an interesting segment. Uh the camera crews followed them around for I believe it was four months and our segment was cut to about ten minutes. So it doesn't you know the necessity of time is it has to be truncated but it still tells I think a, a compelling story. Okay, well, let me just interrupt a moment to remind folks, if you're listening online and you want to call in, do so. It's 347-637-2284. And we're talking with Dr. – I'm going to call you Dr. You earned it. Dr. Dan – I'll call you by your right name, though. Dr. Ben Datner. And well, it's uh, funny he wrote that, a book called well, The Blame Game. Funny that and, you call me Dan. Uh, a lot of people – Can I call you Dan? I'll call you Dan. A lot of people – Now that we trans- firmly trans- established there are two doctors in your family. Yeah, so. There's basically uh, people transpose the syllables in Ben and Datner and somehow. Come I up did. With Dan. Yeah, but a lot of people do. It's twice. okay. You're not the <laughs> so, first. Okay, let me say just Ben then. I think that'll be easier. But I'm finding this topic actually My parents actually contemplated. My parents contemplated naming me Dan, but they thought Danny Datner sounded stupid. So apologies, <laughs> Danny. Danny Datner, so we may be listening. I like the name Ben. 
But I can see that, you know, as I was preparing for this this program, I was surprised at, you know, someone who, who, who prides herself in taking personal responsibility. I was surprised at how conflicted I felt about this topic and how insecure I felt about some of the um, decisions I've made and some of the situations that I've been in where I've tended to take on perhaps more than my share of blame and at the detriment perhaps of of others and are, are these words are so um, emotionally charged as well. I mean, credit and blame could be used uh, perhaps in, in situations we could we could switch the words around and take some of the charge out. But blame is a pretty um, is a uh, pretty uh, emotionally packed word. If you're listening in too and you like to have a little um, uh, agenda of what we're going to talk about, I did put together some questions and uh, topic points on my website at barebonesbiz.com. Click on the radio page and you'll see Handsome Ben. And I do want to talk about some of these things because I'll end up going on some bunny trails, which are always fun. But let's talk about how individuals assign credit or blame to themselves. Let's talk first about the, because that's, I think, where I felt the most conflicted in this before I even got into the weirdnesses of all the family uh-huh. and uh, business dynamics. Mm-hmm. Well, people tend to take more credit uh, for things, for accomplishments or contributions than others would give them. So they tend to take more credit themselves. They tend to undercredit other people. Uh, they tend to externalize blame, to blame other people or other situations uh, when things go badly, um, and to not so much blame themselves. In the April issue of Harvard Business Review, Robert Hogan from Hogan Assessment Systems, who's another towering figure in the field and a great mentor to me, we wrote an article called Can You Handle Failure, where we talked about dysfunctional personality types and how I think everyone in general, as you were saying before, wrestles with credit and blame, but this in particular, some people make things very hard for those around them. Their character defenses and their patterns of credit and blame are so self-serving uh, and so egregious that they really serve to demoralize and demotivate the people who work with them uh, and for them. And so we talk about three categories um, of, of blamer which are particularly dysfunctional. And those categories are impunitive, where you deny blame or deny your own role in when things go wrong. Extra punitive, where you unfairly or unduly blame other people. Uh, and intrapunitive, where you blame yourself too much. And there tends to be a gender difference, which is that men tend to either be more uh, extrapunitive or impunitive, and women tend to be more intrapunitive. Women tend to blame themselves more than men do when things go wrong. I don't know if that's been your experience as well. That is interesting. Now, what is it, you know, about having to be right, or why is there this discussion all the time about being right seems to be so, so, so important. How how did that happen, or how does that happen? You know, where you'll, people will stop a party and Google it and get the yeah. – what difference does it make? Yeah, I think there's pride. People, it's, it's identity. You want to be known as the expert. You want to be known as the person who's right. Or you, you know, don't want to let anybody else, you know, have uh, – sort of have more prestige than you or have more esteem than you. I think there might be some of that. What about the differences? I find that, like, um, you know, that, that uh, rule that your 
a mentor had about not getting upset or angry or using foul language or getting in a fight with anybody and within right. five seconds. I had the same, not the foul language. I actually mm-hmm. like to swear a lot, but uh-huh. <laughs> I uh, went to the family reunion last summer, 36 family members, and in that situation, in the family situation, I made a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to get in a fight with anybody. And for uh-huh. the first time in my entire life, I didn't, and it was fantastic. Did you speak at all, or did you just not speak? <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just didn't fight. I just didn't fight. Yeah. And in my home situation, I'm really enjoying that approach. I could be right, or I could be happy. I could be right, or I could be kind. It's working for me. But in the workplace, I'm not seeing it as such a clear-cut situation. I think I would be, you know, doing a disservice. I could be right about, you know, the Bulls game statistics, you know, big deal. But in work, we're kind of elevating the the game to a different level, or not maybe elevating, it's just on a different level. And so what about those issues, you know, as an individual? Can you assign credit and blame differently at home and then in the workplace? I think so, yeah. I think there's state-specific stuff. I mean, people are complicated, right? And so you never really know what's what's happening or why. So, for example, somebody could be very modulated when it comes to credit and blame themselves, but suddenly when they're managing other people, they could really struggle with it. Or when times are good, somebody might be very magnanimous about sharing credit, but when things go bad, suddenly become what my editor called a, a blame thrower. Somebody who starts blame throwing throwers. blames. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. Now, and don't you think too? Like I was expressing earlier, that in certain workplace situations, I worked in an organization where taking credit and defending credit was actually a, a rewarded skill set. Mm-hmm. So that may color yes, how exactly. you're going to handle situations and, too, right? And that's what Darren and I <clears throat> really had to wrestle with because there were so many paradoxes. It's like the people make the place, the place make the people, the individuals make the team, but then the team determines the people. So is it in the relationship that the blame emerges? Is it because of the individuals or is it because of the dynamics? And it's really both. So sometimes a toxic work environment can make almost everybody turn into a blame thrower. Other organizations have such strong cultures you know, or or even national cultures like in Japan, there's a saying: the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. So sometimes cultures and organizational cultures are actually designed to prevent people from getting too full of themselves or taking too much credit themselves. Okay. Does that make sense? So, yeah, it does. And I, you know, I think this is, it is really interesting. I can see how you could make a life study out of this. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I ever gave it as much thought as prior to our conversation when I started to explore not just, you know, the family dynamics and the business dynamics, but the leadership dynamics and then the the cultural dynamics. There's a lot. This is an engineering problem. There's mm-hmm. a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. Yep. So family experiences, though, I would imagine if you did grow up with um, uh, within a family that, valued personal responsibility or made it safe to uh, uh, make a mistake, that is going to have an impact on you as you progress. But mm-hmm. what what kind of an impact does it have? And how quickly will you abandon the family uh, mores for the, the 
the organizational more at your organization. Yeah, well, again, that's the paradox of individual differences. So sometimes some people come into the workplace and they reenact their psychodrama regardless of what's going on, and they always feel persecuted or they always get demoralized if they're not the center of attention or whatever, and those are some of the dysfunctional types that I was talking about earlier. At other times, it doesn't matter whether you're American, Japanese, or Croatian. There's such a strong, powerful set of social norms and dynamics in the organization that everyone begins to act a certain way. So that's what the book is about, is it's about individual personality, but also how it's bounded by situations. Sometimes situations make different people act similarly, and sometimes different situations make the same person act radically differently. So it really kind of depends. Is the most important variable in the equation the leader or the owner of the company? It can be, um, but sometimes even leaders are powerless to stop people blaming each other. It really depends on the balance of incentives. And what the book is about uh, is the leadership chapter is about how great leaders let people know that they're going to be blamed for blaming and credited for solving. So great leaders try to help the organization look forward rather than backward. No, but then uh, you and, can and also that. So it's a situation, could you, you know, how effective, do you, do you have any stories or anecdotes about someone who wasn't the, the king of the company or the queen of the company establishing a new set yeah. of uh, values or a new well, way to look at credit and blame? Because I think leading up is something that is possible in certain situations. Talk to me see, about that a little. Did you see 12 Angry Men? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's very much... I was much in 12 Angry Women in high school. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So that's what that's what Henry Fonda does, which is says, "Hey, wait a minute. We shouldn't blame this guy simply because he's a certain member of a certain group or a, you know, we perceive that he's a member of a group. You know, everybody else just wants to blame and get on move out of the finish up the trial and not be sequestered or whatever, but he says, "Hey, wait a minute." And he's a heroic individual. He doesn't have any formal authority in that group. He's actually kind of an understated guy. But the brilliant thing about that movie is about how somebody is almost a peer leader and inspires everyone else in a really productive way without having formal authority. Well, can you really take, can you really take blame and credit out of the equation, or would we want to? How else do we frame this uh, conversation? Because it is nice. I mean, if you do win, if you do make the sale, if you do hit the target, it is nice to be honored and recognized for a job well done. Knowing we're interactive, there may be credit beyond that moment, but do we really want it to be that if you're the, the nail that sticks up that we're going to uh, bonk you back down? Well, it really depends. It's it's whatever works for you and, and for the organization. Often oh, people, are so, people are so <laughs> preoccupied by the social dynamics that they forget about what they're actually doing. You know, everybody is so concerned about who's, you know, who's winning, who's public, or whatever, that they stop thinking, hey, wait a minute, we have semiconductors to make or drugs to invent or whatever. You know, it's, it's much more important to be focused on the, ta on the tasks and not on the credit for the tasks. And so what great leaders do, I think, is they use credit and blame judiciously, but also get people to think more, keep their eyes on the prize and think less about credit and blame and more about actually doing a good job and servicing customers and constituencies effectively. Well, let's say we have, um, you know, you've been called in to help at an organization. Let's take the, take us through a little uh, 
um, a day in the life of, although uh-huh. this may be more than a day's project. Uh-huh. But suppose, you know, I'm the, the leader of a company and I, I call you up and I say, Ben, I just feel really out of control, but I feel like my my culture is really toxic. Whenever anything comes up, there's a lot of finger pointing. I don't have a lot of cooperation between teams. There seems to be uh, a lot of obsession about who's going to get the credit for a win and a lot of fear about having to take the fall for a mistake. I don't know how it got this way, but I'd like to fix it. What are some of the steps that you might recommend or what's the process you might go through to help with this situation like I would say hire me or one of my fellow blame exorcists. Blame exorcist. You have some really good. That we've got blame thrower and a blame exorcist. You got blame good thrower. I have to credit my editor, but blame exorcist. <laughs> I came up with. That's why you have editors. Yep, that's right. <laughs> okay, so it might help to have a third party come in and and um, create uh, a sense of hope and that we're committed to fixing the pro the problem. But that might also create even more blame and upset too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really important to to act in a mindful, non-impulsive way. So figure out why are people blaming each other? Is it the systems? Is it the culture? Is it the incentives? There's a whole section in the book about companies that are hoping for A but rewarding B. So they say, we really want people to sell the high-margin products. And then you say, well, what are you actually rewarding them for? And they say, well, selling volume. You know, so in a situation like that, you might blame the people. Oh, they they really don't get it. They really don't understand. But maybe the incentives are misaligned. Okay, so as you um, uh, as you enter a situation like that, are you going to visit with everybody on the team? Are you mm-hmm. going to how how would you approach the situation? I know uh, my, hiring you is a good idea, but just to kind of get a feel of what the experience sure. is. My my standard talking. process is I'll speak to everyone. Uh, individually so that they can share their perspectives openly and candidly. Um, And And then you have the word name tags that say blamer or one who takes takes no credit. Exactly. Exactly. Just kidding. Yeah, everybody gets like Myers-Briggs types. I'm a, you know, I'm an unrepentant, unremitting blamer. What are you? Oh, I'm a credit hog. I'm a credit thief. Oh, that's great. Nice to meet you. Well, you bring up that, that's like a, a little side note, though. Would you do use tools like that? Because those tools yeah. can be used well or poorly for yeah. that reason. Yep. On my website, actually, if you go to Datner Consulting and click on In the Press, there was an article I wrote in 2004 that was published in HR.com called The Uses and Misuses of Personality Tests, where it talks about how the Myers-Briggs can be a great thing, but if you misuse it to rationalize or to justify or you say, you know, the problem is everybody here is an ENTP, maybe that's not the problem. Maybe the problem is that the incentives are misaligned or the strategy is faulty. So my job is to come in, ask a lot of questions, and try to look at the overall patterns. Now, as far as, you know, it's fun to to talk about this conversation because you keep coming back to the same basic issues, is that even bringing this up, who's to blame for the culture? Right. That's right. (laughs) Or who's to then take credit for the the turnaround? Right. There was an article in Crane's New York Business written by Annie Fisher, who used to be uh, Ask Annie in Fortune magazine, and she oh yeah, and she wrote this great article. If you the the website for the book is creditandblame.com, and there's assessments and press articles, but there's a link to that article there, and she concludes it by saying that often my clients admit 
that there's a culture of blame uh, in their organization. They readily admit that, but then they blame everyone else for that fact. <laughs> so it's a little bit self-referential and ironic. What kind of conversations can you have if you are, you know, committed to creating a change in your culture that moves from, you know, hardline uh, dysfunctional blame and credit hogging to something that is more collaborative, kinder, more uh, open to a, a, um, leveraging failures and um, successes? What are yeah. some of the conversations that you would have? What are some of the words that that I would use as a leader to shift the culture at my company? Well, first, again, it's the, it's the understanding of the why. Why is everyone pointing fingers? Why is everyone so dissatisfied? Why has trust broken down so much? And it's almost like you can't do treatment without diagnosis, so first you have to diagnose, how did we get to this place? Why is our okay. culture so negative and toxic and finger-pointing? And and how do we sort of very delicately get out of that dynamic without making it worse? Because you can definitely make it worse before you right. make it better. And, and, in fact, you almost have to risk making it worse because for that very point of if you really surface how much blame there is, it could be, well, you're a worse blamer than me. I'm a worse blamer than you. Are there, like, um, words, like – specific words that you could substitute that have less charge on them? Are there approaches to this conversation that you've seen people engage successfully as they make these cultural switches? Well, I think the, the thing is really what my job is to do is to create an open environment, not necessarily a comfortable one, where okay. people, you know, I think part of the thing is, and, and the advice in the book, is it's always easiest to start with yourself to yeah. to to try to learn as much as you can and to try to model, you know, like Gandhi said, be the change you want in the world, be right. the kind of creditor and blamer that you want other people to be. If you just make it worse, that's the whole point of the book. The blame game is, it's like the movie War Games, the only winning move is not to play. So if you stop playing, you might inspire others to stop playing because, you know, everybody knows that the pie gets a lot smaller when everybody's focused on slicing it into smaller and smaller pieces. It seems like some of this is so insidious, though. Like, on the surface, we could make some changes and we could um, instill some different incentives, but to weed out the culture, it, it does become a point, I, I think it does become a matter of just finally saying, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to take it to that level. I'm not going to have that conversation. I'm going to steer clear of those moments. Yeah, I mean, you might give up and say it's not even worth it. You might give up and say it's not worth it if it's if it's um, uh, if you're a team member, and that can happen, you know, because you're going to get uh, there's a I can't remember who said it, but the quote is the employer always gets the employee he deserves, and I feel like. The, you know, again, there's a lot of paradoxes, but I feel the reverse is true. The employee always gets the boss he deserves or needs at that moment to make some decisions, perhaps, that that person is a gift. But there's no, um, I don't believe in the coincidence of just being in a toxic environment. There's some lesson there. Right. And, and it really comes the, down to uh, courage, which is can the leader have courage and can you have courage? Tell tell us a story. By the way, we've got some um uh the lines are all lit up on the on the switch. Great, board. let's it's take a caller. So cool. If you've got a question though, raise your hand by pressing the number one. If you press number one, I'll keep an eye on the switchboard and I'll interrupt Ben as as he shares. 
Um, the number, if you haven't called in, you do have to call in to ask a question, 347-637-2284. You can listen in or you can ask, which is really fun, too. Okay, so, Ben, tell me an anecdote. Tell us a story about a culture, you know, maybe a company that you worked with. You don't have to ex uh, uh, expose anyone. No names will be used in this story. No animals will be hurt. But um, share, a, share a story of a, a success story with us, and then maybe a cautionary tale. First, start out by telling us something uh, uh, about a, a company that made a neat cultural change, and it was fun to be a part of the experience. Mm -hmm. Well, Prudential uh, Insurance in New Jersey oh, had you're, a... Oh, you're naming names already. Oh, this is a good news story. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe they'll give me a discount on my premium if I tell... They'll the be sponsoring your through. movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, did you see that movie, by the way, The Greatest Movie Ever Sold? Um, no, but I saw him interviewed, like, on Colbert, or he was the guy who did Supersize Me. Yeah, it's hilarious. He's got the palm, I, uh, the pomegranate juice. I think yes. it's hilarious. I there you highly go. recommend it. It was a very, very funny movie, and I'm not receiving any compensation for mentioning it. Okay, well, I, um, I will put it back on my list, because I saw him interviewed, and I thought, that looks great, and then I forgot about it. So thank you for the reminder. Okay, so, yeah, so Prudential and you and your movie. But back to Prudential. Yeah, they instituted a program, which I describe in the book, called Safe to Say, where they said we, we don't want true polite. We don't want our prudential thing where people censor themselves and people don't speak up. And okay. so they created this program where they trained people and rewarded people and incentivized people and sort of really brought it into focus um, that people should should speak up, that it should be safe. And again, not necessarily comfortable, you know, but, but safe. Because now, where, it, where it, I get, get stuck a little bit is I can see a company doing that, and I can see then if the culture is, um, in, you know, deeply entrenched, people rolling their eyes and going, oh, great, here's another cute name to call this, but you still better not raise your hand. Uh -huh. How do you break that down? Well, I think you really reward people for speaking up, and you sanction them for not speaking up. So and you've got to... Yeah, what is, you know you you have to let people trust, know you got to tell the truth it's going to take some time yeah it does take time but you have to um you know you have to really in word and deed be very clear that you're going to again reward people who speak up and so symbolically and substantively leaders can say you know if an employee gets up and says you know you told us you're going to do x and you're doing y and the leader has a choice, which is you can react to that in a negative way, uh, or you can say, thank you for speaking up. And so no matter how tough the issue is, I mean, if you want truth to speak to power, you have to let truth speak to power. As you worked with the executives at Prudential, were there any surprises to them about this process or anything that they didn't see coming that may have been, uh, you know, good news, bad news, or whatever? Yeah, I, um, I should be clear. It was not me uh, who worked at Prudential. It's a, it's a story okay. I tell. It's a it's an example that Amy Edmondson uh, describes in, a, in actually a Harvard. Look at how you are giving credit. God bless yeah. you. Yeah, I'm yeah. seeing Amy next week. So okay, good. If you're listening, right. Amy, thank you. <laughs> Well done, Amy. <laughs> She's great. Well, let's I mean, talk any, about any, so any listener who's interested in in teams and team dynamics and stuff. She's very fantastic. But let's talk about now. 
you know, I work with business owners and, and uh, um, I help them put business plans together and fix financial messes. Those are the two areas of, of business I feel really comfortable with and have a lot of fun um, exploring and fixing and um, helping people uh, achieve the freedom that may lie in their business, right? And so, so often when I work with an owner, the reasons for not following through are not logical or reasonable, um, but they are more emotionally entrenched. And sometimes people will hire me, and I suspect that they're, they're most interested in showing me, see, how impossible my situation is, how even you couldn't put a dent in it. Mm-hmm. Do you ever find, have you ever found yourself in that situation? Sure. I mean, people often would rather blame for, and that's part of the whole point of the book, is that sometimes it's more comfortable and easy to blame, oh, you know, my boss exploits me, they never give me a chance or whatever. And you say to the person, well, why don't you quit? Why don't you go do your own thing? You know, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? I like that one. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, okay. So there is this this is going to you're going to hold up the mirror and sometimes they're going to make the change and sometimes they're not going to. But what are some of the characteristics? Do you think somebody has to be beat down so low that they're willing to change? Like in my life there have been certain moments where I the what What's the expression? The pain of the current condition becomes greater than the fear of change. Uh-huh. Is yeah. that where you see the moments of real breakthrough, or is it the promise? Is it the carrot? Is it the promise of things should be better than this? Things could be more fun. We could be more productive and happy. What's going on here? Yeah, I think it's a combination. Um, sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's negative. Sometimes people change under duress. Sometimes they change when when times are good and they think they could be even better. So it, it really depends. But Edgar Schein at MIT, Professor Emeritus at MIT, has said that people are afraid of learning, and we all give lip service to, to learning, but it's very hard to learn, and we'd rather have others learn rather than have ourselves learn. Or would rather reinforce yet again why we're right, that this, you know that the stereotypes that we have or the prejudices that we have are true that yep. that becomes so um you know so important to be right about that you could be right about that right and that's the whole thing also in the book is i think you're you're talking about you can win the battle and lose the war it's like okay you're right you're right and everybody really resents you yeah it's like okay you win it was your idea now nobody wants to deal with you uh you know, and that happens, I think, all too often. Model for us how great leaders assign credit and blame. Who well, does as, this as, really, really well? As Jim Collins said in Good to Great, great leaders look in the mirror and out the window. They look in the mirror when things go wrong to blame themselves and to take personal accountability, and they look out the window when things go right, which is, which is who deserves the credit for this. And who would you say um, from, uh, uh, you know, maybe give some examples from the book or from uh, your bookshelf, who would you say are really great leaders who exemplify laying, um, you know, recognizing and honoring a job well done as well as holding folks accountable? Mm -hmm. Well, 
Benit Nayar, um, who's a, a CEO uh, of NCL Technologies, which is a, a large Indian outsourcing company, personally receives feedback from a lot of people uh, in his organization. So he is he collects blame, if you will. He collects feedback and, and is always about constant improvement and really credits his employees and his team uh, for their accomplishments and for their achievements. And um, Michael Dell is another good example uh, of a leader, even though his name is on the door and his name is on every computer that Dell ships. Uh, he has spoken about the accomplishments and the contributions of the other people who work with him and for him. Ursula Burns at Xerox has talked about how important it has been in her meteoric rise to the CEO position of that company that she shared people, shared credit with people throughout uh, her career and that that was very important for her success. You know, as as, as uh, we were, you know, think, I'm thinking too about some leaders who've done this really well. I'm a big Oprah fan, and Oprah has been um, crediting her viewers. You know, as she wraps up her show, she's been crediting her viewers with her meteoric rise and, and the, the, the power that she's achieved in this world, the success that she's achieved. She, she lays right at the feet of the people who've come to watch her every day. And I think that's really, I think that's really important, and I think it's um, endearing. I think it makes you like her more. I also remember when she created the school for girls, right? Mm -hmm. And not long after it opened, there was a big scandal also about um, an abusive headmistress or one of the teachers at the school. Mm -hmm. And I thought that the way Oprah handled the response, it was her responsibility, but she was going to get to the bottom of it was a nice balance of, you know, assuming the responsibility but making sure that we root out and solve this problem. Because mm -hmm. it's one thing to say everything that happens is my fault and then to let somebody off the hook. And that's where, you know, I'm, I'm being the most reflective about this topic today. Mm -hmm. Yep. Very thought-provoking. <laughs> Well, I have so enjoyed this. Tell me what's up for what's up next for you. So you and the acrobats. What about are our callers? Did we get are any callers? We have callers, but nobody has their hand up. Hmm. You can raise your hand, press the number one, and ask Ben a question. Don't be shy. We love this. But what 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 have you got going on next? You're going to write another book. You're going to follow up. Uh, well, I've been touring around. Doing, I'm doing a reading at the New York Public Library on June 14th uh, and a library at Bookhampton in East Hampton on June 18th. So anybody who's in the hood, please come by. In the hood. You're such a, you're such a gangster. Um, yeah, but you all knew that. <laughs> well, what an exciting thing in the New York Library. What a fantastic place. And you're teaching, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I always say I'm presiding over a class. Whether it's teaching or not, only my students have the right to say. That's right. They get a chance. They get the the chance to determine that for themselves. <laughs> That's right. Very nice. I bet you love that, though. It's interesting. I mean, you you certainly get candid feedback from your students. I'll tell you that much. I bet you do. I bet you do. Is there another Is there another book on deck? Uh, I don't know. None. I haven't. Uh... I haven't been hit by the light bolt of inspiration. Well, I wish you wild success with this one. And it's, Thank uh, you. The great questions worth asking are, uh, um, this, this is one of those. 
And uh, I think it's a fantastic book. I think you're a terrific guy. Love to you and Darren, and thank you so much. I give you credit for thank you. a fantastic book together. It's thought-provoking, <laughs> and um, certainly the lessons from this book will make you a better person and create uh, more peace, prosperity, and freedom in the, in the world. So thank you great. for that. Thank you. It was great to be with you. Yay. <laughs> All right. I'll see you later, Ben. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.